there! Welcome to the Non-Servium Podcast. I'm Lucy Steigerwald, and today, in the internet studio, we have Tony Dreer. Um, and Tony is the audio-slash-visual coordinator at our beloved pals, the Center for a Stateless Society. He has a master's in public administration from the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and he lives in Nashville, which is a good city that I enjoy. Um, he coordinates anarchist book clubs. He makes creepy sculpture gardens, which I feel like I want to ask about because that's intriguing, and plays with dogs. And I'm jealous of that because I don't have a dog right now. So <laughs> welcome to the internet. Um, thanks for coming on. Yeah. Hi. You were here promptly early, which is a very scary quality <laughs> in an anarchist. Oh, man. You, you don't even know my obsession with time. We could have done a whole thing just on my like uh, life logging and self-tracking. Oh. You know, it's a, it's a first know thyself kind of thing, right? So you got to, it's best to know every single thing that you do and keep track of it at all times. And that way you can know what kind of person you are. Better you I mean, than I the- I feel like we're getting off to a weird start. Government, <laughs> yes. Continue on. We- we like a weird start here at Let's just start with you and with radical politics. And tell me where you are now and where you started and things like that. What do you call yourself right now if you um, had to pin it down? Uh, so right now I was, uh, so our mutual friend Chris reached out to me about this interview and I was uh, a, a little bit taken aback that I was reached out to because I haven't really been that active a participant in uh, any sort of political scenes for a little while. It's a, it's a self-care phase for me. Um, but uh, yeah, pre- previous to, I guess, my most recent departure, I, I worked a lot as the uh, an audiovisual coordinator for C4SS. So, uh, you know, we, I, I helped produce C4SS's uh, podcast, Mutual Exchange Radio. Uh, for a long time, we were doing readings of a lot of C4SS uh, articles and studies and putting those onto out to YouTube. Um, but yeah, but how I came to like radical politics uh, initially, like I started off as a, as a good Christian boy in JROTC in high mm-hmm. school uh, and was fortunate enough to go to a boarding school where I discovered punk rock and Noam Chomsky. Um, and, you know, so like shortly thereafter became a, an angsty teen anarchist uh, and engaging in light eco-vandalism, that kind of mm. thing. Um, Intriguing. <laughs> and, uh, and then in, in college, like the Iraq war protests uh, happened. Uh, well, I guess, you know, all of early 2000s, like, mm-hmm. a, a uh and so yeah i think that was like very quickly when i kind of uh had cemented for me the like futility of engaging with uh the political system like in order to to get it to change itself like the the complete uh lack of change in any meaningful way to the iraq war protests uh of of American policy was kind of a, a big, I, I think should have been a big death knell to like most people's beliefs and the, I don't know, capacity for like peaceful protests. They were so huge and yeah. they didn't do anything. I always not, forget how big they were. Um, so, you know, that was, uh, that was kind of a, a whole thing. And uh, like 
it got me down personally. I don't know how everyone else felt. Uh, so, but at the same time, I kind of came across uh, a lot of uh, transhumanist literature uh, at the time. Aubrey de Grey was like first coming out. Aubrey de Grey is like a, a lifespan extension uh, guy. He's like kind of the the main uh, like big bearded fellow. Actually, weirdly, he looks like Rasputin, uh, you know, Russian <laughs> of Russian lore. Uh, and uh, of <laughs> course. Is- Obvious connections to the yes, the the like so clearly Aubrey de Grey is rescued and mm-hmm. uh, reborn. No one can see my air quotes that I'm pulling up. Anyway, <laughs> I um, did. I can vouch for them. Cool. So so yeah. So that's like a whole fun thing. But um, I guess because of that, it was uh, to me uh, a indication that um, you know our our liberatory uh, future, such as it was, like probably was going to come from technology in some fashion and not probably uh, getting out in the streets with science. Um, but yeah, so from there, you know, like I was still pretty much like a vanilla dim sock, uh, mm. but like wanted uh, more technology, I think probably than uh, most, but uh, it wasn't until after college that I uh, like learned economics at all had, had, uh, you know, kind of a grasp on economics. And I also read Atlas Shrugged and became a complete psychopath. No, oh, no. No, no, no. That's, that's a twist. No, that's that's not entirely true. I was, uh, uh, I, I became a fan of, of uh, Ayn Rand. Uh, but, uh, you know, I clearly thought she had a, a screw or two loose. Um, but I, as a result, was convinced of like the larger libertarian case against like government intervention and markets uh, and, uh, you know, like being an effective guard against corporate excess. I think before that, I'd really kind of thought that economic regulations were like almost always a good thing. And it was, uh, pretty much like the only, uh, thing that was stopping corporations from being even worse. Um, you know, it was the, it was the very paltry things that the government regulations were, were doing that were stopping like true madness from happening. Um, so, you know, it took a, a, a bit to kind of uh, make those details clear on how some of the mechanics of the corporate state interactions worked. But, um, yeah, I think by the time I got to grad school, I sort of discovered C4SS and like the whole left libertarian uh, movement, the synthesis of like a, a robust anti-authoritarianism uh, but like still incorporating a libertarian appreciation for both like the radical potential of markets, uh, but also the like limitation of centralized action uh, against market participants, that kind of thing. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess that kind of brings me to, to where I am now. Uh, where are you now? <laughs> Um, now I'd say, uh, in addition to, uh, my, like political beliefs, which are like, you know, generally anarchist, I'm not overly specific. I, I very much agree with the anarchism without adjectives, okay. uh, ethos, um, you know, specifying, uh, exactly what economic models I think are, are going to be like the best and, uh, so on is like a, uh, fun, uh, like intellectual masturbation kind of uh, experience, but it like rarely actually does 
uh, much good. It's not like anyone's signing up to try any of these economic models out. So I think that you know a lot more people can get on board with the, the general idea of uh, anti-authoritarianism and anarchism, uh, and we can like hash out uh, like I don't know the exact quantity of a UB of how much a UBI should be like <laughs> later. Yeah. Um, otherwise, I feel like the uh, the main focus of my political thought uh, now uh, is in. Uh, like getting people to get rid of the policemen in their minds uh, via psychedelics. Mm. Um, and, and hopefully one day uh, through like true transhumanist means, uh, which would be, you know, getting the old Elon Musk brain chip or something. Um, Someone else maybe, because I think he's busy now. Yeah. <laughs> he's busy shit posting. He can't put anything in your brain right now. He's busy. Um, both transhumanism and psychedelics to first overgeneralize, I feel like are things that some people have been like, that's the solution to everything. And some people, especially on the left have gotten kind of cynical about technology in particular. And you could you mm -hmm. know, literally blame Elon Musk and probably various worse people, but I don't know. I, I, I guess like when, when you get the doubters with, with transhumanists um, and being an anarchist, like how do you reconcile? Do, do you have a, do you, do you feel like somebody's going to come along and, and fix it all with one genius invention? Like, what does it look like to you? Uh, I mean, it's, that's definitely not the case. And honestly, like one of the biggest problems that we face right now is the sort of centralization of technological development. Sure. Uh, it, it should be the case that like, Lots of little discoveries are being made by lots of little people, uh, but you know, due to the kind of economic superstructure of intellectual property, that's not really as uh, possible as it should be. For I mean, for doubters generally of the uh, transhumanist project, uh, I feel like there's there's two main categories. There's your people who are uh, more or less their their argument is that it's not natural. Uh, right. Like it revolves, you know, basically whatever they're saying resolves to like, that is not as God intended. Uh, <laughs> and there's not like a good response to that because they're not looking to be convinced, uh, you know, like the. It's uh, a very the, popular, I mean, that's a big hindrance. Yeah. It's this, this idea the, that it's unnatural, the end, I guess. Yeah, the, I mean, the, the obvious response to the concept of nature is hogwash, and uh, it's an arbitrarily defined standard uh, according to what's familiar to the person in question. Um, and, you know, these people have no problem using, like, a smartphone or antibiotics or a fork, uh, but, like, I, I want to live a little bit longer, and they lose their shit. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the more interesting objections... Uh, are related to like the inequality of access to transhumanist technologies, uh, like your Elysium uh, dystopias uh, and that sort of thing, which are valid concerns um, in, in the way that it's like, a, I, know, I guess the problem with a lot of these that I see is that, uh, well, that's a concern that already exists about like existing economic 
relationships. And so it sounds like, uh, like in the dystopia being depicted as possible, uh, it's more or less the same, but we also like occasionally have the option of having super high tech stuff. Like the fail case of, of not figuring out the equitable distribution uh, of access to technology is that like, uh, we are in the same kind of shitty inequality thing, but also we occasionally get cool tech. Um, which, you know, uh, I, I guess I see uh, that is uh, not a situation that a lot of people want, but a lot, there's a lot of things I think that uh, work out in this like, um, you know, least, least bad option kind of way. And I feel like transhumanism is is that like the least bad version of transhumanism still results in like a lot of people getting a lot more awesome technology. Um, but uh, at the same time, yeah, sure. Uh, like, let's do something about that uh, inequitable distribution. But the, the answer is not to like stop the development of technology. It's uh, uh, in many cases, uh, like the answer to a problem of inequality is to uh, bolster those who are not getting access to it, not to bring down uh, those who are getting too much of a thing. Um, That's a very good general rule that every single instance of privilege, I always think, why are we focusing on the people who have the thing that is good, you know, not yeah. being under threat by the police as much, etc. when we want everyone to not be under the threat of the police? I mean, it's the entire framework of privilege is usually backwards for me. And I think that's kind of applicable. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of that is tied to, I, I think that that way of thinking of like, Oh, we need to take away from the, those doing well. Uh, I think probably comes from a good place. I, I, I guess it's just like uh, misguided. I, I think it assumes a uh, like a zero sum kind of uh, world does, yeah. mostly is, is the problem. Like people don't see it as like, oh, if we uh, just give to the people without, they'll actually be able to start like giving back themselves and producing and creating like a whole uh, ecosystem of trade and prosperity, blah, blah, blah. Whereas if you just take from the top to give, anyway, I feel like we're getting into overly broad descriptions of, uh, of things that like maybe require more fine detail points. But uh, with regards to the distribution of, uh, of tech and access to it, uh, that's the sort of thing that like, the, I mean, the top end, uh, the sort of like expected value of things like uh, general artificial intelligence and uh, things of that scale are like, um, so potentially beneficial that like stopping them, like slowing them down, uh, cannot be equaled by the like attempt to make it uh, equitable to everyone. Anyway, anyway, I'll I'll pick up on the uh, critique of uh, uh, a gerontocracy forming, uh, right? Like I think this is another common critique of uh, possible transhumanist, uh, at least of actual immortality, even if that's sort of not even worth thinking about yet but i know some libertarian s people who really think that that's what would happen is like immortality or incredibly long lifespans would just immediately lead to more authoritarianism which 
Seems like sort of an interesting, like a concern, but that doesn't really end my advocating for that potential, I guess. Uh, yeah, I, I guess I, I mean, you know, certainly it's possible. Uh, and the, so, but there's also kind of an element where like we are already very close to a gerontocracy. Uh, <laughs> the people, you know, Biden's like 80. Uh, he's going to run again. I, I know that supposedly these people are going to die. Uh, but I'm just, I'm not seeing it. Remember how we all <laughs> thought that Trump was going to die in office? It just made so much sense. And he got COVID and we're like, ah, yeah, finally. And then they juiced him with the super soldier serum and he kept living. <laughs> um, and like, that's what it seems is already taking place. So uh, maybe the gerontocracy thing is a valid criticism. And we're going to find out like in the next few years, just how bad it can be. That said, I don't think uh, that if it is a thing, I don't think it's going to be as bad uh, or worse than our current situation is. Like, there's it's, it's kind of a possible lot. Like the the bad parts of transhumanism sound actually kind of like continued bad parts of regular life. Um, there's just you know, it's this is very much like. Uh, medieval peasants complaining about the cholera or something it's just the same stuff over and over again i guess we we now have the covid whereas we had the plague back then it's it's just there's more more of the same and we'll be uh complaining about it i guess in the metaverse instead of real life but the point is it's not like if that's what we're worried about it, it doesn't seem overly bad uh compared to the potential gains um yeah. That said, in terms of it possibly not happening, I think that's also a definite possibility. I think that the access to, uh, generally speaking, uh, like technologies on par with artificial intelligence and like uh, your 3D printing and your sort of like mass distribution of the means of production uh, level stuff, uh, it's hard not to have that kind of uh technology and not have it lead to a more distributed world a a more uh free liberated world capable of enhancing individuals capacity to fulfill their own desires uh ideally we would get to the point where this level of um you know ability to uh make what we need where we need it as we need it is sufficient that we won't be as dependent on the institutions uh, that government has forced upon us. But uh, yeah, it's kind of a kind of a knife edge right now. I don't I don't blame people for being a little dubious of the uh, most Pollyanna-ish depictions of transhumanist utopias. But I think they go too far in the opposite direction. And I was just thinking, you know. Most people aren't against medical advances in sort of a familiar way, um, barring, you know, uh, recent vaccine technology. But like in general, no one's like, oh, if you keep, you know, grandma alive until 90, why the, you know, religious people don't really complain about that. And the tech phobes don't really complain about that as much. It's just when you, and when you pass this line into transhumanism and unnatural, so yeah. they get scared, I think, of the idea. You know, what the problem is, is so grandma living to, or past 90, or living forever even, uh, that isn't the problem. The problem is that 
you know, the full uh, expression of this technology, grandma is going to be living as like, like a 40 year old uh, at age 90. And that I think maybe is introducing some Oedipalurgus that's making a lot of these people uncomfortable. Oh man. Uh, Grandma is a 40 year old forever. Just the temptation is too much. <laughs> well, both my grandmas deserved. I mean, I always thought mine who lived to be 99 should have gotten some sweet, you know, cyborg technology. So that definitely she better. She was, she was sharp for about 98 years and 11 months. I forget. Something <laughs> pretty good. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I think that the, the radical life extension uh, side of transhumanism is is probably one of the things that uh, you know. So something like mind uploading or whatever is is kind of alien uh, mm-hmm. to think about. It's you're you're getting into consciousness and like what it means to really be human. And I think a lot of people would like just rather not think about that altogether. But life extension uh, and radical life extension uh, hits on like an uncanny valley nerve uh, mm-hmm. where it's uh you know they know people who have lived a long time well your uh your grandma lived in 99 well that's mm-hmm. wow that people live that long but like suddenly you talk about 123 <laughs> and you're like well that's too long i well that must have been like a, a a monk who like only ate broccoli and took a vow of silence and whatever and uh well sure that's the case right now but if we're talking about uh, technologically induced life extension, now we're like 130, but you have the body of like a 40 year old and uh, you are able to pursue life just as well as you would have done at any other point in your life. Uh, the only reason that you need to die is, well, if you choose to. Um, and that's what makes people uncomfortable. And, uh, you know, I, I sure it overturns, uh, all of established human history to have people just only die when they want to. But yeah, it doesn't, is that really so much to ask? Um, I don't know. Were you directly, did you say 123 because you remembered that the oldest confirmed person was 122 in lifespan or is that just a really good, Oh, <laughs> I guess I a knew French that. French lady, I believe. Oh, uh, no, I'm yeah. sorry. Was she 120 or 122? It was very close to your next <laughs> in yes. the year after. So that was kind of funny <laughs> to me. Um, I, I didn't know that off the I knew that uh, uh, that uh, woman had just died recently, but I forgot her exact age. But, you know, it's always been uh, 120 is the, the top out. Like, that's the, mm-hmm. the age that uh, scientists give is, like, the maximum reasonable. Can't beat it. Yeah. That's yeah. Weird. That's just the, the body wears out. Uh, it's our expiration date. And in order to get there, you have to either never, as you say, you know, eat broccoli. Um, I remember Okinawa apparently had freakishly, like, a large number of 100-year-olds for a long time. Um or you're the guy who's like, yeah, I smoke a cigar every day, and now I'm <laughs> yeah, 115. You, you, it's either you, one or the other, it seems yeah. like. Or you, moderate you. in everything. So those are your choices. <laughs> uh, well, whatever it is, it appears to be far more random uh, than simply choosing to do it. Uh which I, I think is unfortunate. And this, this kind of choice, I mean, I, I think this is the, the root of anarcho-transhumanism, uh, this kind of choice to continue to be uh, in whatever way you want to be, even if it's as simple as being alive, mm-hmm. 
is a, a kernel of uh, what makes transhumanism uh, such, I think, like intertwined with anarchism, like this, uh, this kind of root desire to allow people to fulfill whatever desires they, they have uh, is, I mean, I, I find it to be a, a like self-evident like value worth pursuing. Um, but yeah, I think it's a, it's a definitely a good thing to have as many people as possible able to pursue their desires, uh, at this almost like molecular level. I couldn't like prove that anarchism has more, um, you know, tech phobe type people. Cause I think that's a very common human condition, but you know, we've all heard of anarcho-primitivists and, and the type. I mean, is there something do you think about anarchism that that maybe leads to more people like that? Or is it... I mean, I definitely understand the anti-civ uh, argument and this idea that with civil... Like, there is uh, no way to have civilization without hierarchy, uh, that, that kind of uh, mentality... I disagree with it, uh, but I can see, yeah, I mean, I, I've always lived in a civilization, and uh, in civilization, we have a state, uh, so I can definitely understand, sure, oh, yeah. so we, we need to get rid of the civilization then to get rid of the state, right. um, and that seems like a bum deal, uh, seems like there's an awful lot of good stuff in civilization worth holding on to, um, and I guess from the technology side of things, like, I think that that comes back to a uh, you, you get real fuzzy on what kind of tech is acceptable and what isn't, you know, like the uh, the I'm I'm certain like a, an anti-civ thinker has maybe taken on the question of like, well, you're you going to like do away with toothbrushes too? like how far back are you going to take it? You know, like, but that I think is a should be like sort of a. a, a a very important question that I don't know the answer to. Like, well, like, uh, do anti-civ people want to take away literally everything technological? Because there's going to have to be some of it rolled back. Is there a way to be anti-civ and still have technology? I don't think so. Um, I don't know. Anti-civ thinkers, what do you think? Uh, but yeah, uh, I, I, I see the reason for the... Uh, preponderance of those people within anarchism yeah um were i to lock you in a room with ted kaczynski to have a debate i mean if you have the smartest most pessimistic version of this attitude like particularly when it comes to nature i mean there, there's too many roads even to go down now it's like what is nature and is it valuable only when it's untouched you know and is that sort of an artificial thing, et cetera, et cetera. But I guess people who just think that technology and even human civilization is directly at odds with the rest of the planet. Um, and even without becoming, you know, someone against abstract thought, sitting in the dirt, um, eating the dirt, like how do you use transhumanism and technology to do better say than we have been in terms of protecting nature and being a little less, rude to the other inhabitants of the planet uh yeah so that is obviously a, a hard question like the 
kind of fact is to pursue the kinds of technologies uh, that are needed to put any sort of real transhumanist utopia into effect, uh, like our current extractive technology uh, to make this happen is like not great. And even if we lived in a much better world where uh, we were doing the best we could to clean up the environment as we were taking stuff from it, I suspect that you know we would uh, probably not be totally environmentally sustainable uh, as is today, right? So uh, that is kind of a, a problem that has to be dealt with uh, on the way to our transhumanist future. And I, I hope that we do better at it. But I'm kind of also uh, on team humanity. Like if there is uh, going to be trade-offs in lives and uh, like a chunk of the environment, like lives went out for me. Um, but I don't think that those choices have to be as hard as they are though, right? So that, I mean, this is, this is uh, a lot of these questions about like, uh, what about the environment? Uh, I, I think don't have to be so dire. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, all, all we have to do is stop spending uh, trillions of dollars on uh, the world's militaries, right? You know, there, there's like easy money uh, going around uh, that could very easily take a lot of pressure off of everything else that we need to get done to, you know, live as gods in a digital uh, hyper world. Um, I don't want to live in that digital hyper world. <laughs> I mean, I'm, you know, I'm team humanity. Um, I'm a speciesist, but I also, well, I've stopped at pescatarian, but I'm working on it. Um, and I think a lot of the reason that I, you know, people are, are very all or nothing often about, um, about animal, animal rights issues, mm -hmm. whatever you want to call it. Um, Actually, Will, William Gillis, for to name drop, um, has tweeted some good things about like. Basically, do you think like you don't have to think that a, you know a bird is is exactly the moral weight of a human to think that maybe the bird has some moral weight to it because it's, you know, it's alive. It can yes. feel pain and stuff. Sure. So there's actually, there's like you know there's actually degrees there that for some reason nobody you know it's either a carnivore who's weirdly like angry at vegetarians or it's um earth first and there's nothing in between for the rest of us you know i think that's kind of an artificial idea as well agreed and i, I think that that uh same kind of thought can be applied to environmental costs generally mm -hmm. speaking uh uh it doesn't have to be all or nothing there are definitely um you know we we need these resources uh even even if we're not talking about uh transhumanism just to maintain our, our current way of life without having billions of people die off suddenly like some sort of extractive industry is going to have to take place for a little while and you know very quickly we might be able to get out of this if we can figure out asteroid mining if we can figure out uh fusion power mm -hmm. you know those are some like big wins that would uh radically change our current uh environmental expectations um, but yeah, in the meantime, sure. Yeah. Let's do everything as good as we can, but also like, it's not, uh, like nothing or everything. Like there, there are ways to, we don't have to, you don't have to be 
uh, 100% let's shut it all down. It all has to stay on the ground. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I want to be like, uh, as environmentally friendly as I can be. However, like, I also would like to live with some modern conveniences. So I don't know. I guess I am a terrible I bourgeois. All of us yeah. would prefer to live with. That's the thing. Um, and um, okay, there was there was there were several potential avenues based <laughs> off of that. Again, one thing about nature, I think about myself and try to not be someone who thinks that my aesthetic preferences should should um, you know be what everyone else on the globe does. And is, you know, my, my fondness for Montana mountains and relatively sparse people, is that an aesthetic preference? Is there any, like, inherent value to that? I don't know. <laughs> I like it, though. I like a nice, you know, I like a nice um, large living space and, and not that much population density. Um, but I almost feel like environmentalists talk about that as if its value is self-evident. Maybe it's not. I don't know. I yeah, so I, it doesn't help that all of these questions are are mega complicated, right? Like you're talking about uh, living in a sparsely populated area, and like I think that that's fine as a uh, preference, but uh, you know I think the real problem there is that like a lot of people who live in sparsely populated areas are effectively subsidized by the road system, uh, and like the way that the uh, especially in the United States, the, the way that the transportation system has been set up, uh, like s population density uh, is, is a government subsidized program uh, or like low population density, right? Mm -hmm. um, so like if you wanted to, to get like real with it, it, you know, it's fine that you want that, but like, are you willing to now pay as much as it really costs to get power, water and roads out to where you live? A lot of less people, I think, would probably be willing to make that compromise, and they'd probably get more dense. And so, yeah, there's this whole uh, again going to back to things don't have to be as dire as they currently are. Uh, if the government just didn't have uh, it control over virtually aspect of the way that society was structured, there's a good chance that people would start to migrate closer to each other in order to save. Uh, on transportation costs in order to become more efficient. They wouldn't be subsidized to live uh, in an environmentally unfriendly fashion. Yeah. I actually took way too long to realize that, like, I read a totally mediocre YA series, I remember, and in this future, everybody lives in cities and nobody touches wilderness and that's the environmentally friendly end result. And I find that a very sad idea because <laughs> again, that sounds very claustrophobic indeed. Um, so it's like your choice is either, you know, the primitivist sitting in the dirt or you have to live in a mega city for environmental, you know, concentrated, make it more efficient. So we're not messing up everything. Um, and I can't say I love either of those concepts. So that stresses me out, man. Yeah, and I'm I'm sure there are ways to live out uh, in the sticks uh, and not be like subsidized by the government, but I don't think that that's the case for like a lot of people who are living out in the sticks, mm. or even the suburbs. Mm -hmm. Really, it's probably the suburbs. Honestly, I, I bet the people living out in the sticks uh, are are fine. It's it's really it's a mid range, not quite all the way out there. 
but still expecting all the same uh, amenities that a city has. It's true. We do want it all, literally. Um, I've lost the uh, the segue to this, but you mentioned <laughs> um, the potential of fusion technology, and I gotta ask you about nuclear power in general after that. Um, sure. What about it? I mean, oh, what we're, about- ta- we're talking about a future imminent but yeah, probably I mean, thing, uh, but like so, even current nuclear power or the nuclear power plants we haven't been building for the past 40 years, except in France for some reason. Um, uh, yes. I mean, it, it's obvious. It's uh, a travesty that uh, the United States kind of shut down nuclear power plant building uh, when it did. Uh, I'm so happy that France uh, kept that up. I don't It's peculiar. I don't really uh, know enough about France to know why it was that their culture was like totally okay with uh, uh, nuclear power, but that's that's cool. Uh, Honestly, I kind of want to look into that more. Is there like yeah, I've mentioned honestly. Yeah. Okay. So that's a new new (laughs) thing to look into. But uh, yes, to like yesterday, we need a a whole bunch of nuclear power plants. Uh, But I from the looks of things and uh obviously this is said with like some trepidation but like it seems like fusion power is finally coming around like people uh seemingly very serious people are talking about how the joke of fusion power always being 20 years away is like finally finally not becoming a joke anymore um and i can't help but feel like there's probably going to be like a ramp up to the introduction of that that uh um will be pretty exciting uh like because we are kind of on a knife's edge right like the uh developments of climate change over the past couple of years uh are, are getting real cinematic uh <laughs> so uh if if we can uh nail down fusion power before they they get like too blockbustery uh i think that that's gonna (laughs) be a really good thing that is the what that is what we're trying to avoid it's true that's (laughs) evocative unfortunately um yeah my my new pet theory about nuclear power um the aversion to it i think in part is like i remember all the talk about uh, is it Yukon Mountain where they were going to cram all the nuclear waste in Nevada? Um, when we have like a you know generic factory and all the pollution that goes up and gives people major lung problems, we don't see that. So most random people don't, are not bothered about it. But with nuclear power, you see the end result, and that's much more like you know, it's, it's much more real to people. I think your average person, like knowing that there's the end result is this also probably the Simpsons did a lot of damage. Yeah. To this guy's. Uh, you know, I've read, so I don't know if uh, Kevin Carson still thinks this, but I, th- I feel like I've read a, uh, something from Kevin Carson that argued against nuclear power from the perspective of uh, nuclear power requiring uh, central authority in order mm. to regulate like the That's an idea. kind of model of nuclear power uh, is like so wrapped up in the state that it makes it a, a bad option as like a kind of a, a liberatory technology. Uh, it's, it's hard to 
have widely distributed nuclear power or, or at least uh, i guess <laughs> for now yeah 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 um but i don't recall how how hard he was on on that i uh i'd be curious to, to look that up some that. more yeah um and that I think seems that like that's... a critique of now as opposed to any like any potential you know. Yeah, and I guess I mean that's uh, likewise for a lot of technology. Sure. It's like the uh, tech isn't inherently good or bad, but like some technology is a little more partial towards to to abuse by authority than than others. I feel like like I instinctually get that there's a connection between transhumanism and and intellectual property questions, but somehow I can't. Can you can you put those together for for us? The relevance. Sure. Well, I, I feel like the uh, main stumbling block there comes with intellectual property being this uh, complete bulwark to the, the infinite expansion of uh, like intellectual capacity, right? Like to, to like information spreading uh, carte blanche across the universe, right? Like here we have a legal fiction that's just like saying, no, you can't it's completely natural for information to reproduce infinitely, but no, you can't because it's against the law. Um, and since transhumanism is, uh, if nothing else, focused on the complete freedom of minds to expand, uh, this it's kind of a, the, the, these two things can't coexist. Transhumanism and intellectual property will always be at loggerheads. There's mm-hmm. uh, no two ways about it. Like, the unfortunately obviously like because intellectual property like forms the foundation of our our modern economy uh then like we're kind of shed a luck for a little while but i think that things are getting better mostly by virtue of it being more and more difficult to enforce intellectual property laws effectively um but it doesn't help on the big stuff right so uh you know, when we're talking about fusion power, when we're talking about artificial intelligence, uh, those sort of like top level technologies are still very much uh, going to be under the purview of intellectual property. Um, or I mean, I mean, patents, as, obviously. Well, patents, yes, yeah. patents specifically. Uh, but as a means to control both access to and the kinds of uh, development that those technologies are are allowed to branch into. So like right now, um, you know, one of the hot controversial topics around AI is uh, artists with the, the Dali and writers and so on with the chat GPT and how they're all going to be put out of a job. And uh, so, you know, that's, I, I, I hate that just like I hate that uh, your person running your photo uh, photo development 24-hour photo thing, like I got put out of a job too. It sucks whenever anyone gets put <laughs> out of a job for technological reasons. It's just not a good reason to not have that technology. Um, but are we even there yet? I mean, there's always this weird push and pull between why this technology, like we're it's perfect and we're, all, we're there and now chat gpt will do everything for us um or it's a terror and we have to fight it now before it consumes us all i mean it's like both of those (laughs) are premature it's to me i mean with the visual ones 
the you know the, they they can't figure out how many fingers people have <laughs> or creepy teeth. It's very creepy pasta. It's not um, no. You're right about that. Like there there is uh, quite a bit to the like skies falling uh, nature of some of these claims. Like yes, ChatGPT and uh, Dolly and all that are, are incredible. Uh, but yeah, it's not going to happen tomorrow. Um, they yeah once they figure out how many fingers there are maybe. <laughs> Um, but you know, I actually just recently hung out with a friend who's a mural painter and it, it occurred to me that like, uh, oh, you know, I bet a lot of graphic designers could probably also paint murals. And so maybe something like Dali is just going to lead to like more public art because we don't have robots that can m- paint walls, uh, very well. Right. So like, yeah, it's, it's the, it's the kind of thing where like, there should be more of this thing because it's a lot easier to do. Like that's how economics works. You've, you've reduced the um, price of like making pretty good art. Uh, So there should be pretty good art uh, in a lot more places. And like the people who are saying that they're going to be put out of a job, like maybe some of them will be, but I bet a lot of them will find ways to continue making art uh, in other avenues. And that's that's awesome. And I think a lot of people are just scared that they won't, or that they'll be one of the people who like doesn't figure out that their whatever their thing is that they should go to next. And yeah, that's always the case with any new technology, and it is scary, uh, and it sucks when like you get left out of the technological benefit boat. Um, I mean, I have sympathy for a small creator who's nervous and who perhaps you know knows that Disney is not going to get. Oh, sure. um, mm-hmm. hindered by these things, but maybe they will because they're tiny. But I'm thinking specifically of a slice of life web cartoonist I saw, and she was upset that, you know, her art was molded into the grate. <laughs> but like, you can't make exactly her little comics yet. You know, you can use her um, style of art and sort of, and the amalgamations and stuff. But again, to me, it's not, we're not, it's not exactly the same yet. I, I, I'm more impressed by ChatGPT than I am by visual stuff for some uh-huh. reason because I am a text person. So I feel like I can tell more that I am impressed by some <laughs> of it. Whereas, again, the visuals, you either get the uh, full-on creepypasta ladies who are supposed to look real and something is very <laughs> wrong. Or you have these sort of quasi-sci-fi like sci-fi magazine of your style you know, landscapes that often kind of look cool. And then you look at them and there's something a little, I don't know. I've never taken a quiz, you know, to see like, is this, did a human make this or a, I don't know how well I do. I like, you know, I'm, I'm imagining that I would do well, but. I always feel like uh, all of them look like they, they over weighted the deviant art uh, <laughs> side of the training model. Uh, they just, probably. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, but yeah, um, maybe you're maybe right about that. I I have been impressed with a lot of the ChatGPT uh, text stuff. Although mm-hmm. earlier when I asked it to write me a bio, uh, I was not impressed. But I, maybe that's <laughs> actually just my bio that's not impressive. I, sh- I shouldn't put that on the AI. Maybe I should try. See what happens. <laughs> I'm scared to try. Scared to see what the robots think of me. Um, but you know, beyond that, I, so there's the whole issue of like losing a job and so on but i think that the 
bigger reason that especially artists are so attached to IP is that they uh, they have like a connection to their art and there's like they're a dignity wrapped up uh, in all of it that uh, they feel is like necessary for for them to maintain control over this like unique piece of of thing that they made um and i you know like that's a it's a very emotional argument it uh, is yeah i mean they still I, made it you know it, it right. didn't change like the web cartoonist i saw she still made that car that that comic and she's still doing it and I know. a piece of it was borrowed for visual purposes but it's not nothing's been taken that's that to me that's the ip thing that it goes back to like that was the thing that finally made me go duh um i, right, you know, I used yeah, baxter like... and kazaa as a child like some of us did some of us millennials did but the whole concept like it can't be theft because you still have you can thing. have it and i can have it and like i didn't take it from you now there's two versions of the song and that's all it simply isn't the same thing as theft Right, which then you're, you know, it transitions to being accused of not wanting artists to make a living. I mean, uh, I write stuff. I'd love to make a living. <laughs> and, and I'm happy, you know, to have a gentle social stigma against, you know, if I write, um, you know, Oliver Twist and change nothing and put my name on it, either I'm doing a really tedious type of performance art or I'm just lying, you know, and people <laughs> should be like, but we know you didn't write that. You Ooh. didn't change anything. Now, if you add, you know, zombies and sea monsters and the things they did with Jane Austen, you've done something, you know, I mean, you've changed it. It, it would be, that's such a, a good performance art piece to like literally write out <laughs> Jane Austen, like on a typewriter, just that's the, the whole thing. And then well, you put your name on it. I'm just that's, that's stealing really good. That's good. from really, te to me, totally tedious visual artists, mm. one of whom literally took Marl Marlboro ads uh -huh. and, like, cropped them and was like, this is my art now. <laughs> I'm very unimpressed by that, even though I'm sure, I'm sure it challenges my preconceived notions about art, but also I think it's really boring. I, it's, it's the thing that, like, it should be very boring, but because intellectual property exists, it is made uh, interesting. Uh, it's only Maybe. because that, this, <laughs> you know, it's, it's made, again, quote, air quotes, interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, because this, this act of uh, tedium is actually, like, a massive violation worth like millions uh in a in a lawsuit uh so you know that's, that's it's a it is dumb that such a dumb thing should have a, potentially such a big impact all right you're all right maybe i like it a little better now <laughs> but uh yeah so i don't you know the i feel like the artists are always going to want to hold on to the the things that they made and mm -hmm. um i th that's kind of like a societal thing that i think will improve over time i think that the whole nature of sharing culture uh went away for a while there's like most of the 20th century uh we've been kind of like a more locked like hold on to your song you gotta like copyright it so the mm -hmm. uh the record labels don't take it from you and like people don't realize that like oh the record labels like they they already took it from you that's you're never going to get any money from the record labels mm -hmm. uh and and this sort of like 
idea that uh, copyrights and intellectual property somehow protect you from the, the big guys, um, I, I think is going away, if for no other reason uh, than uh, media sharing becoming so easy that it never even like occurs to people uh, that like the business model for media should be to a number one like get it under copyright um so of course uh at the corporate level that is like not what's happening mm-hmm. um so yeah i this is a, a perpetually difficult tension to figure out the seeming uh widespread social acceptance of like the new world what with its uh uh, network distributed information nodes and yada yada uh, and like meanwhile it seems like corporations are larger and more powerful than ever and have more right, ways yeah, yeah. Exactly. so like I don't I don't get it I don't know which one of those is going to win out uh, I'm like constantly surprised by developments on both sides you know we're like kind of like you know we, we uh, approach utopia in some fashion but then we approach like cyberpunk dystopia at the same so speed. is life. So is life. That's yeah. yeah. Um, so I I think that uh, at the base of all of that, intellectual property is is largely an obstruction to figuring things out faster for more people, uh, and don't deliver definitely as many benefits as uh, it's claimed to provide. But you know, some might say it's actively harmful to all of humanity and like, well again uh stops it, yeah medicine patents i almost feel like the small creator is going to get squished and they need their copyright almost works is more convincing to people than why does a patent on insulin actively kill people and we're sort of letting that happen and the boldest among us say gee maybe insulin should be cheap but no like almost nobody says why are we letting them keep their patent on um, more more efficient, effective, whatever you say, type of insulin? Because that's my understanding as to why it's so expensive. Is that yeah? You know. I, and so yeah, like as a larger uh, kind of phenomenon, the uh, repatenting, the evergreening of of medicines mm-hmm. uh, by way of changing like very small chemical groups within. Uh, their their makeup to make it like legally distinct enough right. to to patent again, but somehow and this is uh, you know the weirdest thing like making it legally distinct uh, enough to patent it again now uh, makes it able to prevent people from figuring out the original recipe or like using the original recipe mm, in yeah. a generic uh, offshoot, uh, which seemingly contravenes the supposedly you know limited span of protection uh idea there, there's so many contradictions just wrapped into uh intellectual property at the at the outset like this like the limited time feature uh is like very suspect like it started off as uh 20 years say 20 years i guess for patents or it was 14 and then bumped up to 20 and then for copyrights it started at what like 25 and then has gone to 50 then 79 now it's the like life of the author plus an additional 125 right. if it's a corporate owner um so like whatever uh very tenuous relationship 
intellectual property ever had to uh, like a limited term and that being the the trick the the saving grace that that made it work uh has has like long since gone away um do you look back into like the uh, at least within the united states how like intellectual property got started like thomas jefferson is like the first uh head of the patent board he like hand approved all of the patents submitted there was like thomas 20 he and he he like pro- he allowed three of them the rest were yeah. not novel enough um and like even he was dubious of the the enterprise uh as a whole uh i, I wish he had stayed a little more dubious mm-hmm. apparently he he got convinced at some point um but but yeah it was all still wrapped up in the like limited term and that that's gone away uh another contradiction is like obviously with free speech uh like that that should be like the the biggest uh obvious like these two things don't mesh you can either have uh like a right to free speech or you can have intellectual property you can't have both uh like at a fundamental level like intellectual property uh like controls what people are able to say like if nothing else saying like okay you can say everything else but not this thing that is copyrighted or you can but you have to do so and give me money for it and or uh listen to whatever other dictates i have about the the use of it it's both a fundamental um you know hindrance on free speech and it's a phenomenal excuse for government power which it took me too long to realize it's you know attempts to control the internet and restrict various things. Copyright's a great thing, you know, try to get through those barriers and stuff. Uh, both governments and corporations. Uh, mm. uh, a DMCA takedown is like the first thing that almost any corporation will use to, to put down any any slightly critical media that ever comes out about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's surprisingly effective. Like, uh, So, yeah, uh, intellectual property has a massive chilling effect on just like uh, speech in general, be that mundane speech uh, or I, and there's like really silly things like uh, uh, nursery schools and like daycare centers using uh, Minnie Mouse on their walls and like getting sued for uh you know oh, some yeah. ridiculous amounts of money <laughs> yeah that's and always a good one it's that kind of thing uh that should at the least make you question its current uh strength you know that, that that's the part that's really irritating about uh the situation with intellectual property right now is that like very modest changes which would uh i don't know improve its existence marginally are just like totally shut down. Like we can do nothing like with uh, the COVID vaccinations. That was a good example. Like mm-hmm. uh, India was like, Hey, can we get uh, some COVID free of patent just so we can pump this out? You know, we got a lot, we got like a billion people here need, need some COVID vaccines. No, it is very important that we maintain the patents and you only produce COVID vaccines on a schedule that we can agree on based on our intellectual property needs it's insane. Like it's, it's literally the biggest thing in the world that's killing so many people. And like, nope, got to maintain patents. If we didn't get the patent, we wouldn't have made this vaccine anyway, uh, right. is what they say, which is insane. Like these, these people, so this general argument of like, oh, uh, if pharmaceutical companies don't get patents, uh, how, how will we make the drugs? Yeah. Uh, and like, I don't know. People keep dying. People keep not wanting to die. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that is enough incentive uh, to spur a good bit of, uh, of research and production on the matter. 
Yeah, I mean, even a very... I don't know if it would be the best solution, but even a, in, like a, a six-month head start or bonus, especially in an emergency like COVID, anything like that. But honestly, even without that, you still make money if you invent a great drug. <laughs> I mean, like the incentive yeah. is there. It should yeah, be there. People don't want to give up, or what corporations don't want to give up, is their uh, monopoly ownership on on life-saving medication. Like they did, yeah. Uh, they don't want to give up their uh, control over the entire process. And then this is a, a thing that is uh, like wrapped into governments as well. Uh, being able to kind of like control the entire pipeline of research and development uh, mm -hmm. gives governments uh, like pretty intimate access to how a population as a whole develops. Uh that, you know, you could get really sinister with with the kinds of things that were are like possible with this uh, if you wanted to. I mean, this is the kind of thing. Uh, so you tie this whole vaccine thing with like uh, using vaccination programs in Pakistan to root out uh, Osama bin Laden and uh, oh, like yeah. a few other. So there, there's just like it, it's. In one way, intellectual property facilitates this entire apparatus. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I guess I'm not saying necessarily like intellectual property caused uh, the the whole Pakistan vaccine thing, but mm -hmm. I, I guess my point there is that because the vaccines themselves are so tied into the corporate government's uh, approval process that they they can exert uh, an immense level of influence on any part of that process they choose uh, to whatever. Uh, ends that whoever is in control wants to. Um, so, you know, maybe it's not uh, something as nefarious as uh, uh, like tricking people into taking vaccines or whatever, but maybe it is something like, uh, oh, a government uh, agent has the ability to like overlook a slight uh, hiccup in the testing along the way because it'll make uh, their stock portfolio look better and so on and so forth. It's it's not hard to come up with uh, a bag full of like nefarious uses of uh, this much power over an entire production process. And um, that's what people have been doing lately to their yeah, own detriment. Yeah, and it, right. And so I guess we want to tie all of this into like uh, like just vaccines since we're talking about it. Like uh, yes, the complete control over this uh, process is what make people makes people uh, believe that there could be something uh, wrong with the whole process. Uh, you have things like uh, vaccines being approved seemingly very quickly uh, in comparison to what a lot of other medicines were uh, approved at, and uh, and then oh now suddenly like this is okay. I'm sorry. Can we can't stop stop this. Let me. <laughs> um, so we talked about a lot of, well, vaccines, drugs. Um, I was curious to talk to you a little bit about psychedelics, which is something that I can't talk about firsthand. But um, obviously, this is becoming more of an acceptable thing. Um, you know, a mainstream thing to discuss that psychedelics and uh, micro dosing and whatever. Um, you know, people are seriously looking into it as a way to fix sort of PTSD and more dramatic things. But um, I don't know. Tell me about them. 
<laughs> tell me about the drugs. Tell me about psychedelics. Uh, so, like, drugs are great, uh, obviously, <laughs> uh, because done properly, they make you feel good. Mm-hmm. I, I don't Fair think enough. that they should need much more uh, justification than that. Um, I mean, psychedelics... people really hype up psychedelics. <laughs> Speaking as the person who it's hasn't true. done them. And sort of, you know, you don't know your own brain until you've done them. They can fix all of your mental problems. And also they open the doors of perception, you know. Yeah. So, like, it's a lot. There's (laughs) a lot of hype going on. I think, like, two-thirds true there. Uh, (laughs) Psychedelics are especially great because they allow you to bypass some of the filters that define our reality tunnel. Mm -hmm. Uh, So one of the ways that psychedelics do their thing is by depressing your metacognitive abilities you kind of lose the ability to think about what you're thinking. You can kind of just think anything and the automatic self-judgment created by years of social programming to feel a certain way about what you're thinking doesn't take place. Uh, It's why you feel like a a dissolution of self and an overwhelming connection to the universe. Daunting. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) daunting, but fun. It's scary, like like good adventures should be. Mm-hmm. Um, you're temporarily free from the cop in your head. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, I, I think, experiencing that as a taste of what anarcho-transhumanism hopes to accomplish—the the untrammeled and boundless ability to mold reality in whatever way our creativity directs us. So, yeah, it's ruby man. <laughs> Basically, totally, 100%. I I get from the outside looking in, people on psychedelics are like, hey, man, it's all just like everything. (laughs) And like, that sounds dumb or, you know, whatever it sounds like. I don't know. It sounds. It sounds. uh, A bit incomprehensible from the outside. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. There's definitely like, you can write that person off as having a screw loose or something because (laughs) it's difficult to explain fully like what's going on. Um, and certainly some psychedelic experiences, uh, like on DMT can get like real out of this world. You're talking about machine elves, you're talking about unfolding the fabric of reality. Uh, and like, maybe that's, that's something else who knows. But, uh, if we're going to go with like more vanilla psychedelics here, like psilocybin, ecstasy and so on, it's 100%, uh, allows you to understand your brain in ways that are difficult to figure out without uh, other forms of medication or like years of meditation in the Himalayas. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's just very few shortcuts uh, to get to these kinds of brain states that don't involve psychedelics. So that's, that's kind of my pitch for psychedelics. Um, did they it's, inform yeah. your politics at all, or are they just sort of a well, I, a microcosm I, of them in some ways? <laughs> I think so. I, I really uh, feel that prior to using psychedelics, I had hmm a different sort of understanding of the rest of humanity. It wasn't. I don't think that I was as connected to it. At least in my mm. own state, I was a uh, an army brat uh, and like kind of an insular person, and so maybe that was a like a, like a personal thing that psychedelics did for me is like oh, open me up to caring about the world. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but I I suspect that everyone has their own like unique walls that come down as a result of using psychedelics, and um, you know it's <laughs> uh, I guess in in a way you could argue that they are shortcuts. So, you know, I, if you're interested in having like years of therapy and talking stuff out, like maybe, maybe, and maybe you should do that also. Right. So it's not like a either or situation, but um, yeah, it definitely like takes you to places that would otherwise take a, a long time to get to. And that's the best way I can put it. Honestly, it's, you- this is why it's a journey, right? This is why it's so often depicted that way. Um, just but the fact that it's they're getting more mainstream, really tentative. Um, I think it was the word success. That's not what I mean. You know, I, I feel like with, with like marijuana, you, you know, we 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 got we legalized in a lot of places, and then there's already sort of a burgeoning backlash. You know, the kids are on like like where do you think we're going with psychedelics? Um, because they're daunting for us squares. Um, but <laughs> I don't know. It almost feels like we're getting somewhere in a positive way with those as a as a society. Yeah, you know the uh, drugs generally, right? Like the the United States being founded by Puritans really really <laughs> set the world back a couple couple years. Mm-hmm. Um, I you, you look back at the like history of the use of drugs like marijuana uh, and psychedelics generally and they were extremely commonplace or if they weren't commonplace they were at least like not so rarefied not so uh uh, like punished not so just uh persecuted and Mm -hmm. so on uh and i would be i i think that perhaps as things get legalized we are very likely to turn it into a consumerist phenomenon and because that's what what the United States does with everything, and so that's definitely going to happen. Um, but it would be nice if it came back to this, like, not necessarily sacred, but like a little more than just a uh, party drug kind of status uh, mm. for for psychedelics. Like, it it is can be recreational, but I think it's also therapeutic, and so. Um, honestly, we, there's probably like a, a problem with the way we think of drugs now, just in terms of like the, the necessity that a drug either be all recreational or all therapeutic. Like you can't, you can't do a drug if it makes you feel good and, uh, makes you better. Right. Like there's, oh yeah. The, like, um, with, with. Attempt said, attempts at, um, medical oh, with THC. trying to suck the psychoactive, yeah, uh, Marinol, which like, yeah. well, it, it might help you, but it will make you feel shitty as opposed to pleasant. So here you go. Right. Patient. Oh yeah. We can do that. Yeah. It's, it's the feeling good that we don't want people to do. It's so overt. I find that so fascinating. Just like the, no, no, we can't have that part. That's, this is not fun. Which, uh, you know, leads to, like, irresponsible drug use. Like, mm-hmm. because there's, uh, you know, if, if something was uh, therapeutic, they'd have it legal already. So this must only be recreational. And mm-hmm. so I'm going to take it like a fucking recreation and, like, max out on whatever whatever it is we're talking about. So, yeah, uh, unfortunately, that's probably going to be the thing with psychedelics. There'll be like over and overuse uh, phenomenon and there'll be the kids uh, who are losing their minds uh, because they got into mom and dad's 
psilocybin stash. Um, and those will be interesting days at school. Uh, <laughs> All the 70s um, urban legends will be true suddenly. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's definitely going to happen. Like I, uh, don't have, there's, there's no way to avoid it. The, the, the way to avoid it would have been to never, uh, make these things illegal to begin with. Uh, and that could be said for like a whole range of phenomena. Like oftentimes the, the problem with legalizing it is a result of it having been illegal for so long that people don't know how to function with it. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously used by, uh, counter reactionary forces as like, uh, reasons to re uh, illegalize it, and yeah, yeah. So uh, we just got to hope for the pendulum swing to stop on our side, I guess. Yeah, that's so, yeah, that's, that's that's a lot of things indeed. And I, we can kind of lean towards the wrapping up, but not to demand that you sum up your entire political philosophy. However. Can you give me, and we're doing this a little backwards, but like, um, like, wh- like, what's your positive political vision for the world? And also, <laughs> you, you know, can you kind of wrap it up for me a little? Sure. I mean, for myself, I would be happy to live forever, preferably without any monkey's paw caveats. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, for the world, I... I uh, would honestly be happy with small things uh, like drug legalization and less military spending. I, I know that intellectual property uh, change is like a ways away, but it would be nice just to, you know, um, let's bring back Napster. I'm going to call it. <laughs> Napster was what good. Is, let's let's bring it back. That's what I hope for the world. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I think the small thing is like, again, we can't like, maybe we'll need a sequel about transhumanism, but I think... To a lot of people, it's a very daunting, it's too big, you know? So I like that you answered with small things, mm-hmm. you know? It's not, <laughs> again, it's not like the uh, childhood's end, like we're all immediately going to evolve into the next, like, we don't, it's just take it easy, you know? We'll climb a little slower and we'll, we'll get there. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so that, that there's your, there's your, um, you know, the, uh, your positive vision. Um, but what is a, what do you think is an effective political action? Like, what are you doing to make this happen? Darn it. Uh, so I feel like I know uh, what effective political action is less and less. I, um, Same, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think the political action... Uh, to be effective has to make a change in people's material conditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, like that's, yeah, that's the definition of what makes it effective. And most of the biggest changes in doing that have related to technology or better access to technology. Um, so like when you, I don't know, think of the biggest problems facing the country right now, like according to Pew, affordability of healthcare is is like the biggest thing. And so, I, don't know, I think the reasonable. most effective political action isn't uh, demanding that our politicians implement this or that policy. I think it's probably going to be to start like a DIY pharma lab in your backyard and make bootleg insulin. 
Oh, like um, our th- we had an interview with the guy from us. Uh, oh, Three Roses Thieves Vinegar Thieves. Collective. Yeah, Three Roses is like a, a liquor, I'm sure. <laughs> um, and as Three, far as I know, yes. he sounds very legit. Like I respect that a great deal. That I have listened to an interview with uh, that outfit before. They seem incredible. Uh, yes, like that is effective political action, and. Uh, I'm sure that's like a, a bit beyond the skill set of a lot of people, but I think that that is the right uh, mindset. Don't demand that problems be solved. Solve problems. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there, we have an obligatory question at non-Servium, which is, mm-hmm. how would I, not you in case you don't like right. it, but okay. how would I get a cappuccino in your political utopia? And my political utopia, you would be able to, uh, I don't know, call up the file of what a cappuccino tastes like uh, and have it play on your tongue. Wow. <laughs> Not even print it out or anything. Play directly on yeah. my tongue. That's what we'll call wow. it. We'll, we'll be playing flavors. Hmm. All right. I, I, can, I, can, I can accept that. Okay. Um. <laughs> Um, and I will let you go unless you, you can answer this later, but we wanted to start, a, you know, give us three books or oh, sure. any kind of media that, you know, influenced you, you recommend, et cetera. Um, I don't know if you have anything, I guess we should have warned you about this, but it's no, a new not... thing. So I, uh, would definitely recommend each of the three books in the Illuminatus trilogy Okay, uh, would be sure. an easy one, but I'll, I'll count that as one for, mm-hmm. uh, this. Uh, I wish that everyone uh, would watch the entire collected works of Adam Curtis, uh, who made The Trap most recently. He made uh, Hypernormalization, which came out in, I think, 2016, 17. I think he had another one real recently. It's called right, Russia 1985 to 99, Trauma Zone. Anyway. He is an absolutely lovely documentary filmmaker okay. who uh, does a lot of collage uh, stuff with like an amazing soundtrack and just cannot recommend him highly enough. His work focuses largely on um, the like big sweeping views of uh, history and stories of like big ideas with tragic comic consequences okay so yeah check Mm. them out um and uh check out molchat doma uh molchat doma is a belarusian band uh (laughs) they're like post-punk uh very very good if you're on tiktok you've probably heard them uh but very very good stuff so yeah wow I don't know. TikTok had such, I don't know. That's, uh, it makes me more intrigued by TikTok. Cause you know, the kids, the kids probably heard it on TikTok, (laughs) but I, I knew about them before TikTok. So that's good. Take that TikTok kids. (laughs) Indeed. Um, well, you know, we didn't get to, uh, your buddy, Robert Anton Wilson, not your buddy, uh, maybe figuratively, uh, who wrote the Illuminatus trilogy, which, other anarchist types, um, libertarians, I know, have recommended. Maybe we can talk about him sometime. Um, or we can all read the book, and then <laughs> we'll know why you recommended it. Yes. But 
I guess we can wrap up now so we can all eat our dinners or whatever we need to do. Um, I had a lot of fun. As usual, I almost feel like we're just getting started, but you know, you can come on again and we can shit talk more IP or what have you. Yeah. It was a lot of fun, Lucy. <laughs> uh, do you want to tout yourself on the internet where people can find you? Anything like that? Or you... Oh no, you'll, you'll find me when you need me. <laughs> wow. That's <laughs> the best answer that I have heard. Um, well, <laughs> you'll be able to find him at Nonservium once this is released. Uh, so Nonservium Media, all one word, on Twitter. Um, we're on Mastodon, which I actually use now, which I am surprised by. Um, and on various other social medias that you may or may not use. Um, I am still plugging my Twitter and Lucy Stag. Um, yeah, this has been a lot of fun, too. And... I guess let's maybe do it again sometime. Okay. You're listening to the Non-Serbian Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe over on our YouTube channel or on your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us across social media on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Mastodon. If you're extra interested in seeing this project continue, consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com. But if you can't contribute financially, we still like you a whole lot. And you can help us out just by liking and sharing this episode or any other one that catches your fancy. As always, shout out to our existing patrons. Your support helps us reach a larger audience and helps keep this project alive. Thanks so much.